Father, we come this morning in prayer, lifting up our thanksgiving uh, and praises to you as a community. We thank you for the gift of life that you have graced us with. We thank you for the breath in our lungs, um, for the people around us, for all the provisions that you've given us. We thank you not only for life, but for new life. We thank you for the salvation that we have been given freely through your Son. We thank you for his incarnation, for his life, his ministry, his teachings, his healings. We praise you for his death on our behalf on the cross. We thank you for his resurrection over death and his ascension into heaven where he stands right now interceding for us directing us to your sons and daughters we thank you for the spirit that has been poured out on us and in our community we we pray that this morning we would be receptive to your spirits moving we pray that we would have ears to hear and and hearts that are sensitive and desire to to follow uh, where the Spirit would lead us. We pray as we open up Scripture um, and and look into and, and, and dig around in our lives that you would open up areas uh, for us to um, grow and, and for us to um, lean in more to who you are and, and what you would have for us. As we come this morning, we lift up not only our uh, thanksgivings, but also we come to you with our confessions that we have not loved the way we ought to, that we have not um, been faithful the way that we have been called to be faithful. And as we lift up these sins, and these shortcomings, these confessions, we receive with gladness the word of forgiveness given to us in the gospel that we are accepted and loved and freed um, for new life, for the joy and the peace of the kingdom that has come and is to come. We pray that this morning in all that we say and do and all that we pray and in all that we think, your kingdom would come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What do you want? What do you really want? Not what do you say you want? That's the premise of a movie called The Room. And in this movie, it's this kind of post-apocalyptic, dry, desert wasteland um, type of world. And there is a handful, there are a handful of travelers. And at the center of this movie and of this universe is this kind of mythical, magical, special, weighty place called The Room. And what happens in The Room is that as soon as you go into The Room, all of your deepest desires and wants come true. They're made manifest. And the movie follows a few travelers around as they search out the room. And as they finally arrive to the room, they stand outside of it. And they start to second guess whether or not they actually want to go into the room or not. The question that they start to think through is, what if what we really want isn't what we say we want? Or we know we should want? Last week we asked whether we had ever been hungry for something that we knew we weren't supposed to have. This is their issue, right? I mean, imagine if this room did exist and you were beckoned into it, how comfortable would you feel? You might know the right things to say and you might actually believe them and be convicted about them, but at your deepest, most weightiest core, what is it that you actually desire and want? And are you ready for it to come true, to be fulfilled? This is the kind of existential question that the the movie places on us. It's a question I think Christians are 
um, well-placed to, to understand and to handle. As Christians, we come and, and we're able, like we just did in the prayer, to confess, to say that we don't always want what we're supposed to want. And that's part of the story. That's part of the good news is that we're saved despite that and that we are freed up to have those wants changed. We're in a sermon series right now called Liturgy, the, the Rhythms That Forms Us. Last week, we started it and set it up, and it was all about this question. Um, how do we change what we want? We, we noticed that many Christians experience a disconnect between what we know and what we do, what, we, what we're educated about, and then what we experience or are able to act on. And, and we said, perhaps if we portrayed it like this, humans could be understood as hungry creatures, and the task of discipleship is to shape our appetites to be hungry for the right things. Like Jesus said, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst to feast on the body and blood of Jesus. But like anyone knows, and, and we discussed last week, a lot of times what we're hungry for is not what we should be hungry for. And we kind of riffed off of that idea of hunger as a metaphor for our longings and desires and, and lifestyles. And when we, we laid out kind of three points, the first was that you are what you eat. So very um, physically and literally, right, what you put into your body ends up becoming who you are in all kinds of ways, not only physically, but, but also mentally and cognitively, psychologically. The, the things that you eat, they change how you experience the world, how you think about the world, how you live in the world, how you act in the world. You are what you eat. We're perhaps one of the the the, the Places our discipleship, our process of becoming more holy has gotten glitched, has, has gotten caught up, has fallen off the path. Is, is because sometimes we assume that humans are just purely rational creatures. That we're simply thinking things and we take in information and act appropriately considering that. As anyone who's ever worked with kids know, humans are not rational creatures. Or anyone who's ever been a manager or a supervisor at a workplace, you know, humans don't always do the logical thing. Their actions cannot always be explained by rational thoughts, not even their own. Sometimes humans act against their best interests, and they do so knowingly. No, according to Scripture and according to to a a deep, um, attentive look at humanity, we're we're more than thinkers, that's a part of us, but we're more truly, essentially, worshipers. We're lovers. We're wanters. We do what we want to do, which is why there's that disconnect. We have to ask, what is it that we actually want to do? Not what we know we should want. Most of us know the right answer. We know what's good for us. The, the trick is finding the, the gap, finding a way for that gap to be closed. I know that I shouldn't eat high-sugar foods, but on the way to the grocery store, I find that cognitive dissonance between what I know and, and what I truly want. You are what you eat. In the same way, because we are embodied lovers, this kind of creature that we are, the things we do the very physical embodied practices that we participate in shape us. They form us. We become what we do. If you lie over and over and over again, you start to become a liar. Your, your habit is your destiny. The things you do over and over again, much like a, a certain type of diet, start to shape the way you are, start to shape the way you experience life, start to shape the way you act in that experience of life. You are what you eat. We, we said maybe you could take that uh, a little bit farther and say you are what you want to eat because of that disconnect. The key is not necessarily just knowing what you're supposed to eat. It's having that hunger, that appetite change, that appetite shaped. And we, we talked about how hungers are learned things. The direction or shape of your hunger for food is a learned thing. 
It depends on all sorts of things. It depends on how, what you were exposed to. It depends on your habits. It depends on your family. It depends actually on lots of things that are unconscious, that you're unaware of. So food is engineered to be empty and addictive for you, to have no nutrition, to make you want more of that and need more of that without ever being satisfied. And so if this is true, you are what you eat, you are what you want to eat. We said, how might we shape our appetites? How can we change what we want? Well, it takes discipline, or we said liturgy. It takes identity-shaping, love-forming practices and routines and rhythms, embodied actions that over time shape what we want. In the case of food, you ironically have to eat what you don't want to eat in order to eventually want to eat that. So, so you, you're, you want to eat kale, and I'm sorry, no, no one ever wants to eat kale, um, like spinach or some other uh, food like that. You, you might not like it, right? But if you force yourself to do it over time, you start to develop a taste. You acquire a taste. It becomes second nature to you. And we said this is how life works as well. This is how holiness and discipleship works. It's through liturgy, it's through practice, it's through regular committed rhythms that are intentional in a community that we find our desires, our deepest wants change, and we find ourselves growing in holiness. We said perhaps the task of discipleship is more like a Weight Watchers community than it is a a self-help conference. We don't just need more information and new strategies. We need a community of people that we can enact certain disciplines with until it becomes second nature, until we find ourselves changed from the inside out. I want to look at a passage of Scripture that um, kind of corresponds with this idea of the emphasis of liturgy, of these identity-shaping practices. So if you would, open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4 as we continue in our series this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The question before us this morning is I want to ask if our hungers or our wants are learned, if they're acquired, if they're caught from things outside of ourselves, sometimes unconscious things outside of ourselves, things we're not aware of or we don't choose on purpose, I want to look out this morning at our culture, at the different rhythms and practices we're invited into every day as people in Sugarland or Houston, people in the 21st century, people in the Western modern technological world. And I want to, to try to examine and look for ways that we have been catching different hungers and desires. Perhaps, sometimes, unfortunately, that are at odds with the truth of the gospel, with the good news of, of Jesus. But first, in First Timothy chapter 4, picking up in verse 6, as we read, I want you to pay attention to all the discipline language, to everything that you find here in this passage that talks about a process, that talks about intentionally participating in acts of worship, not just singing, but praise and and scripture and spiritual disciplines like prayer and how that in this passage starts to become who we are, starts to change us over a period of time. Verse 6, the scripture reads like this. The Spirit says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, he says, train yourself for godliness. So don't Just expect to wake up one day and be godly. Don't expect to fall accidentally into godliness. He says, train for it. Put together an exercise regimen. Get up early in the morning to do it. Find a community that will encourage you and give you tips and hold you accountable. Put it into practice. Train yourself, he says, for godliness. 
He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. In the same way that an Olympic athlete or an athlete of any sorts intentionally goes about the things that they eat and the things that they put their body through to transform them, to shape their muscle memory, their capabilities. He says, while that's valuable and powerful and can have a profound impact, so it's even more valuable and more profound and more impactful when you do this for your holiness, your discipleship. It's valuable. It holds promise, he says, for the present life and also for the life to come. It changes how you experience and how you receive God's life right now in the here and the present and also prepares you to fully experience it for eternity. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. That language of effort, we toil and we strive. We sweat and we bleed and we cry and we stretch. For this end, we we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Very interesting sentence there. Think about that sometime this week. God is the living God, is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Until I come, devote yourself, commit yourself, be intentional about practicing the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching, to what we might call the job of the church, worship. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Practice them. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see progress, so that you will slowly start to become what it is that you are doing. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here we have a passage that I think clearly highlights the importance of discipline in the Christian life. Practice these things. He says, train yourself for these things. Strive and toil. Why? Because they're valuable. They're valuable in preparing you and shaping you to experience God's life for you in the present and in the future. That if you persist in these things, progressing in your faith, you will save both yourself and in this instance to this leader, You'll save also your, your hearers. What do we do? How do we shape our appetites and wants? Well, I argue it takes liturgy. It takes these identity-shaping rituals that, that grab our desires and our wants through our bodies, through actions, through our imagination, through images, through physical sensations, and slowly shape us into the kind of person we're called to be. We, we catch our um, new appetite. Our loves, our wants, are often unconscious. We often are not rationally, consciously thinking about or aware of what it is exactly that we want or why we want it. If, if you were to study the unconscious mind, what you'd find, particularly in the last generation, as we've gotten new technology, um, like a functional MRI machine, that can examine um, the different parts of your brain, the neurons that are firing for different stimuli, as we can examine and study um, different people who have different parts of their brain disabled or injured for various reasons and how that affects how they act and participate and interpret the world. As we learn more about the brain, um, we are coming to appreciate more and more the power of our unconscious mind. Not in a Freudian sense, 
in this kind of um, suspicious, speculative, psychoanalytical sense, but, but in the sense of um, your brain actually is firing, is working. It's not like this deep kind of weird thing with your mom or dad, right? It's actually a physical process in your brain just that you're not aware of. It's been shaped and formed. These paths have already been created. And so you start to drive and you learn how to drive and then eventually you're driving without thinking about it. Your brain is still doing the work. You're just not telling your brain to do it and you're often unaware that your brain is doing it. And there's all kinds of crazy things we do as human beings um, that we are not in control of, unaware of, and that we are surprised by when the research is presented to us and often will protest in. I'm reading a book on the unconscious mind um, exploring kind of the, some of the more fascinating neuroscience um, discoveries in the, the past generation. And there are all these repeatable studies um, where people are presented with different options and decisions to make, and they make them on a certain rational criteria in their mind, and then they're revealed later to have been no different, right? Or they have been made them for different prejudices or bias that they had unconsciously. Um, and then these people often... Will uh, will will not um, buy this. They'll say, "No, I wasn't thinking that." Um, we have all kinds of different biases, all kinds of different unconscious factors at work when it comes to what we want and what we love. And the shaping, the catching, the forming of these loves is often unconscious. It's through these rhythms. We might say you can be learning to love certain things in places and spaces that you never would have imagined, and you can be learning to love or desire or want certain things that are wrong that are antithetical to the gospel. You can be being shaped as a person through certain cultural practices to want stuff, to want material items, to want to consume and acquire, to think that that's where fulfillment, satisfaction, salvation will be found. And then you come to the teachings of Jesus, you come to the scriptures, and we find out that's not where salvation is found. That's not where fulfillment and security and peace is found. You can be being shaped through all kinds of different routines and outside forces to desire and want domination and power, status. When we come to the scriptures, the teachings of Jesus, and we find out that's not the way of life. That's not where satisfaction and fulfillment come from. We might say our idolatries, the things we worship wrongly, are more liturgical than they are intellectual. They're, they're less that we think the wrong things and more that we are simply immersed in practices that shape us unconsciously sometimes to want the wrong things. There are rival liturgies all around us. We, we might call them cultural liturgies, practices, rhythms, routines that you and I are invited into, things that we do but then that do something to us. And that's the catch. There's lots of things around us that we do, and, and sometimes we think we're just doing these things, but in reality, they, they do something to us. They work on us. These liturgies, they're love-shaping practices. They're not just expressions of what we already believe or already want. They actually determine more and more what it is we believe and what it is we want, even if we might intellectually know that's not right for us or might be convicted uh, rationally, that that's not what is good for us. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Unabomber or not. Um, if you're too familiar, it's a little weird. Um, 
But recently, there, a movie came out about uh, the Unabomber, and there's a, uh, I think it was a Netflix show that came out, and it's one of those like BAU, Criminal Minds, procedural shows, which I'm all about. And so, very fascinating to me, um, very interesting, and I got familiar with the Unabomber's kind of thesis, with his, his view of life. Um, kind of his manifesto was the, the idea, uh, this very idea, that the things around us aren't just things that we do, they do things to us, sometimes things we don't necessarily want or didn't invite into our lives. Things maybe we can't escape now that these things have been created. So he railed against technology, and he, he thought technology was invented for our convenience and, and for um, this, this idea of progress, but in reality what technology ends up doing is enslaving us and creating a world that we can't get out of, that we're confined in. A world that perhaps we didn't want, would not choose if we could objectively, rationally sit down and choose the different options. So he uses uh, the car for an example. The automobile is created, and it, it provides all kinds of great things to civilization. You fast forward, though, to Sugarland, Texas in 2017, and now you and I cannot live without a car. I mean, you just can't walk 15 miles down to the grocery store and then walk 30 miles to your favorite church in Sugarland, and then walk 60 miles to your, your business downtown or your, your workplace. We, we create the car, but then in a sense, we're kind of enslaved by the car. Now, if you can't afford a car, if you can't afford the upkeep of a car, you are at a disadvantage in our society. It's, in a sense, a necessity in order to pursue the different things that we created it to offer us. Um, you might think of um, the internet or YouTube or smartphones like this. We create the iPhone. And it's, it's amazing and beautiful. And the iPhone, though, creates us in its image. The iPhone shapes us. It, it changes our lives. It changes the, actually the very way our neurons fire. It changes the way we think and experience the world, the way we interpret different events. A child who was raised before the iPad and a child who's raised on an iPad think differently. Their brains actually work differently. They have different solutions to things. Perhaps better or worse, right? I mean, that can be argued in different circumstances, but it's hard to deny that things have not changed drastically. I'm in a very unique generational section where I have one foot in an experience before a digitally native world, which means I can remember before YouTube and before the internet, before smartphones, I didn't have a phone until I was 16. It was a flip phone. You only use it to call people. Arguably the worst use of a phone that there is. And what we did as kids is, is we came home and we went outside as soon as we could. You finish your homework, do your chores, and you go outside. And just the rule was you go outside when the lights um, come off or turn on in the neighborhood. When it turns dark, you have to come back home. And our parents just let us go. I mean, we just explored the world. And all of our wisdom as a band of 10, 11-year-olds. And that was exciting for us. I mean, staying at home was boring. There was nothing to do there. Now I drive down the street, or drive in a neighborhood, and you rarely see kids outside. They're inside on their smartphones, on the social media, things like that. And I'm by no means a hater of those things. I'm just trying to observe that things have changed drastically. It's even changed the way we parent. I mean, this is fascinating to me that when I was a kid, again, not very long ago, Parents were okay letting their kids wander around the world without a way of reaching them, of knowing what was happening to them, or of getting them back. 
and not like irresponsible parents, right? These are not like call CPS on these people. My parents were very well-to-do suburban parents. If you answered a question, you might be back-talking and get a spanking. And still, every night, we would just go wonder, get in all sorts of trouble, explore new things. And they would just hope we'd show up again, relatively unhurt, new stories and adventures. And if, if something were to happen, there was no way to get in touch with us. There was no way to track us and, and know what we were doing. There was no way to come find us if we perhaps didn't come home when the lights turned on. Compare that now to, to parents today. Again, not to say one's better or worse, just to observe that it's changed. It's even changed for me taking care of children. Um, I've, I've taken kids on trips. We went to New York once, a group of like 30 kids, and the, the policy was they could go off on their own. These like 16-year-olds, they should not be on their own, in groups of three or four, as long as they stayed together, in New York City. And it was a week-long panic attack for me. Because all kinds of terrible things will and shall happen to these children on their own, not only making bad decisions themselves, but also in a world of bad decision makers around them with either ignorant or malicious intentions. It's changed the way we, we, we think about things. What we, we do, what we experience, what we create, it does something to us. Liturgy, the power of liturgy, it's not just confined to religious spaces. This is key to understanding who we are as humans and how we might grow and train ourselves in godliness. It's not just confined to a synagogue or a cathedral or a sanctuary or whatever you call this. They're everywhere. There are liturgies everywhere, and and they're often at um, odds with one another. They're, They're rival liturgies. They're orienting you to desire and want and become different human beings than perhaps you want to become or perhaps you are supposed to become for your health and for your life. Our cultural awareness is primarily not about messages and ideas. It's not about intellectual content. Um, most of what's happening in culture goes on under the radar, and you miss it if you don't pay attention to what's going on under the radar. So I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, like the gay agenda, right? Um, there are more conservative pundits, right, who are very fearful that there is um, this agenda um, uh, of homosexuals and, and people who are their allies that is kind of taking over the world and, and infiltrating and changing things in different ways. And then the, the response from someone maybe who's more liberal in their political views is that, hey, there's no secret meeting of the gays, right? There's, I mean, there's not like a council of gay people and they get together and say, what is our agenda and how will we change the world so that everyone adopts the, the, the values and practices that we have here? What, what's happening, whether you agree with that or not, you know, I'm not going to get into that one particular space. What's happening, though, in our culture is our culture is after more than just our ideas, our intellectual conversion. Our culture is after our wants, our desires. Our culture is after our imagination. Your culture is not trying to change what you think. Christians have learned this the hard way. That's a bad way to change people, to simply attack their ideas. The culture is much smarter, much more powerful, much more attuned to humanity than that. They're trying to change what you love. They're trying to change what you imagine. They're trying to change what you conceive as the good life, as that which will satisfy you and fulfill you, bring you peace and joy and security. They're trying to appeal to and shape what you think is wrong with yourself in the world 
with where you might find redemption or salvation from that, and then correspondingly what you might enjoy as a good life because of that redemptive process or action or experience. If you look at commercials, many have said commercials are, are modern religious parables. If you look at a commercial, a commercial is not overtly trying to just convince you of an idea or an effect. It's trying to appeal to your emotions, to your deepest desires and your wants, to your core identity. So there's, you know, beer commercials are, are great at this. They're, they're kind of classic. Um, you've got, so like a Michelob Ultra commercial, which is not a great beer, um, I've been told, but I just mean if you're going to backslide, don't do it with Michelob Ultra. Um, Do I get an amen for that? <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a typical beer commercial, right, you, you may have, they're, very, they're, they're pretty stereotypical, they're very powerful, very effective, usually pretty sexist. Um, in, in a typical beer commercial, say Michelob Ultra, you've got um, a group of guys, and they are out on the beach, and there are some beautiful women doing their own thing, not paying attention to them. And then they pop open the beer, and all of a sudden, what? These beautiful bikini-clad women are around them, partying, having fun on the beach, then, different shot, now you're in a club, and the music is poor, and no one is having fun. All of a sudden, the Michelob Ultra pops open, and all of a sudden, the music is banging, everyone's having fun. It's appealing to what you consider a good life. It's appealing to your deepest desires and wants. Ad agencies, marketing firms, they, they explicitly know this. I mean, they've changed their MO because of this. They no longer are in the information or propaganda business. I mean, you can go read their, their cultural um, uh, structures and systems and processes. Um, they are in the meaning creation system business. They are attempting to create a world in which you are attracted to by its appeal to your desires and wants. They are trying to, to capture your attention to a narrative about what's wrong in your life or in the world how that might be fixed through their product or company, and then what you might experience as a result of that solution. There are these, these cultural liturgies that we're invited to every day that, that shape us. This is why if you go to a particular culture or a particular place and time, there is such a thing as a stereotypical product of that culture. It's because that culture has set up all kinds of routines and practices that consistently and effectively shape people to want and be those types of people. This is why, despite the remarkable fact of individualism, that we all have different wants and desires and all this kind of this, we're all still kind of cookie-cutter people in a, in a broad sense. It's hard to be a modern Westerner in the 21st century and not be a consumerist. It's hard to, to grow up in a nation-state in the modern Western world and not have some sense of nationalism, some sense of devotion and appreciation and commitment to your, your nation. These things don't happen by accident. If they happen by accident, you'd expect it to go 50-50 at the very least. You wouldn't expect everyone to so consistently desire and want the same things, even if they're expressed differently. I mean, it's the, the cliche of the high school um, right, who, high schooler who goes out and does his own thing, in reality, right, what he's doing is the same thing as every other kid who tries to buck the system, tries to be their own individual. I mean, we're, we're all kind of fish swimming in water, and someone walks up to us and goes, 
hey, how's the water? And we're like, what are you talking about? It's all around us. We never notice it. It's who we are. It's, it's formed us perhaps unconsciously. And, and perhaps suspiciously, sometimes it forms us in, in wrong ways. Cultural liturgies are all around us. One of the things that, that scholars have done, sociologists and religious scholars, is they've exegeted culture. Um, they have looked for these cultural liturgies that form us into consumers, that form us into acquirers, that form us into nationalists, that form us into narcissists. What are these things that we're all participating in that so consistently pump out the same type of human being without appealing explicitly to our, our intellects? And they've noticed some big ones. So I'll explore a couple with you here this morning. Um, It's been said that if aliens were to come down um, from Mars or wherever and and kind of sociologically, like a researcher, observe humanity, that they would probably identify the shopping mall as the apex of religious activity in 21st century United States culture. And then you, you have religious scholars who take this further and really kind of study the type of thing and, and are pretty convinced that the mall is the most religious site in most cities. And you can, you can go down the list with how this works. Architecture. Whole books have been written about how mall architecture intentionally is designed and, and modeled after classic cathedral sanctuaries. Classic religious buildings. So, so think it. You go into a mall, and once you get past kind of the little entrance... There are no windows on the walls. You don't see the, the rows outside. You don't see your car parked in the parking lot. No, you're invited into a space that becomes timeless and transcendent. You're invited into a space designed by its very architecture to get you to lose track of time, to move into a timeless experience. And above you in most malls is a very open glass ceiling beautifully designed to bring in sunlight with a very large space between you and the ceiling to draw you up towards the sky. And again, this kind of transcendent experience. If you go to a cathedral that's built and is beautiful, and the architecture itself brings you to worship, here's what you'll notice. There are no walls that have windows. The ceiling is high and uplifted, drawing you upwards into the sky. There's a reason why at, at the church here at Sweetwater, we've, we've renovated the sanctuary and, and done different things with it. Because if you go into a place that's built to be a sanctuary, you don't have window walls. They're distracting. They remind you of the outside. They remind you of what's happening or could be happening or should be happening. And you don't have a ceiling that's two feet ahead, uh, atop of you. It feels kind of suffocating. That, that doesn't kind of draw out the spatial sense of transcendence for you to come and to worship. You walk into a mall. One, you've, you've already had the marketing or evangelism happening to you, appearing, uh, appear, appealing to your imagination, desires, trying to capture a vision of the good life in kind of seductive detail. Um, but you go into a mall, um, and you, you walk through, and there are all kinds of little chapels for you to go in and to worship in. As you walk through the mall, there are icons of saints, all around you, portraying the good life to you, mannequins. Some spaces are different than others. All are liturgical, though. So you have the Apple Store, which is much more of kind of a Buddhist, minimalist feel. Very clean, sharp, 
cuts. You have an amber crombie, which, which is more of your incense, um, incense kind of, uh, not incest, incense, <laughs> hopefully, incense, bells and smells, right? Have you walked into that store and been kind of bombarded by perfume or cologne? You have all kinds of different little chapels. They're all liturgical, even though they might be a little bit different. At each one of them, there is a deacon ready to welcome you into service. Trained very specifically to read you instantly. Do you know how this works? Do you know what you're looking for? Do you know what you're supposed to experience in here? Do you need help? Do you want help? Much in the same way we train deacons at a sanctuary at a church building. Look, if people kind of know what they're doing, let them go do what they want to do. Let them experience what they came to experience. If they seem confused or they've never been before, then you're there to guide them and, and give them the appropriate instruction. When you walk in and it's all this elusive search for the experience on the rack, when you find what it is that you want, what it is that you, you've seen on the, the icons, you might be at the mall because of its own kind of calendar. Malls have a liturgical calendar, much like a church does. Easter and Christmas, Black Friday, holiday shopping, different sales of different kinds. There's a, a rhythm. There's an invitation to come and participate. It's been said that perhaps at the mall, the experience at the counter is the height of worship. It's the, the communion, if you will, where you go and you offer something and then you get a gift in return. A gift that has been sold to satisfy you and fulfill you. And yet we all know, this is kind of implicit in the deal, right? That, that what we get, this kind of moral consumerist experience, is built on the novelty of things that are not going to fulfill their promises. Much like high fructose corn syrup, it's been engineered to be empty and addictive. To not give you what it promises to give you and make you come back for more. We know this and we still happily indulge ourselves. And we go and buy stuff and it maybe tickles our fancy for a day or two or for a month and then eventually it's broken or boring and we go back for something new and we rinse and repeat the cycle. We might say the mall is not just a place we go. The mall is a place that we go to have something done to us. The mall shapes us at an unconscious level. The mall is the liturgical space formed intentionally to, to make us into consumerists, materialists, people who want to acquire things. And that may or may not be a bad thing, but many are convinced when you get to the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus that this consumerism that's at the core of our culture, that somehow we all get trapped in, no matter who we are as individuals or, or what kind of different family life we're brought up in, that when we come to the scriptures, Jesus says this is not where satisfaction is found. This is not where you should feast. This is not where you should place your hope and your trust. This is not where you should spend your time doing. This is not even where you should invest your resources. Now, to some, this sounds kind of silly, right? Um, look, people just need to shop. These are just efficient, organized retail centers. There's always been marketplaces. There's always been exchanges of goods and services for other goods and for other services. Um, it may or may not sound more real and convincing or more contrived to you, all I can tell you is this is a pretty consensus observation on the part of scholars. I mean, whole books and volumes have been written just on the mall itself as a religious space. It shapes us. It forms us into people who want to consume and acquire. 
I'll explore a couple more with you. Um, sporting events, or you might say like the, the sporting entertainment complex, as it's been called. Many have observed for a very long time, actually since the time of Rome, have observed that sporting entertainment served the purpose of nationalism. So they are created and practiced to do one thing very well, which is to create citizens committed, appreciative, and ready to sacrifice for their nation. Again, this may be good or bad, but it's happening. So if you go to a, a sporting event, say you go to an NFL game, and you've got hundreds of thousands of people in there, more than, than many American cities, what is it that focuses all of them and unites all of them at the beginning and throughout the experience? It's the nation. What can possibly get hundreds of thousands of people to be quiet at once and focused at once and doing the same thing together? The nation and its liturgy. A call to worship. Stand up. Let's sing a song about how much we love our nation. Let's witness and participate in pageantry about our nation. Flags and symbols. Let's hear loud noises, impressive musical performances, a sense of unity and, and community. When this is over, the national is over, let's hear a plane, a fighter jet fly right over us, increasing this physical experience of what's happening around us. It's a very embodied experience. Throughout the sporting event, let's celebrate the icons of nationalism. Veterans. Again, I'm not trying to make this sound nefarious. I have nothing against veterans or, or celebrating people's sacrifice for the country. I just want you to realize this is what's happening at a sporting event. Very consistently. Everywhere. From the professional all the way down to the little league. Seemingly, this is what they were designed to do, and they do it well. What happens to a kid who has season tickets to the NFL who grows up? What kind of person do they become? They become a person who feels an immense pride about their nation, their successes and achievements in the context of competition and sport. They become a person very appreciative for all of the leaders of that nation, for the sacrifices that have been made. They become a person prepared to make such sacrifice for their nation. This works, whether you like it or not, and it works really, really well. Most people don't have to convince their kids to be Americans. The way you might have to convince your kid to be a Christian, or to go to college, or to do this, or to do that. It's hard to get out of these practices, these cultural rhythms that we're in, without being shaped the way that they were designed to, to shape us. Real quickly, I don't want to get into the weeds of this, um, but you had the recent controversy of the kneeling during the national anthem and all that kind of stuff. This is very fascinating to me as I was thinking about liturgy and, and about what happens at sporting events, right? The hypothesis is that sports are about sports. We just don't want politics brought up in sports. Well, in the moment you show a flag, it's a very political event, right? You don't want politics that you disagree with or that offends you brought up in sports. Fair enough. No one probably does at a pastime or a place where they're seemingly going to relax or get away from the constant cable news cycle or, or you know, frenzy of the media, whatever it is. But again, presumably, it's about the sport. It's about the players and the team. 
And sports people are crazy. I mean, they're, they're bonkers. They invest, yeah, don't point fingers, but okay. <laughs> he does wear the, uh, the liturgical robe every Sunday. <laughs> sports people invest all kinds of time. And I say this as someone who does not enjoy sports at all, obviously, but, but they invest all kinds of time, emotional energy and experience, all times of, of money into participating and enjoying their teams. And they're committed. And then here's what happened. So, so um, this protest movement kind of starts. It quickly takes on a life of its own, right? So what, what would you hear from most people on the streets being interviewed is they don't, they don't like it because it disrespects the flag, um, disrespects our nation. Mind you, the originators of this protest did not, Colin Kaepernick in particular, did not do this to disrespect the nation. Um, it, was a, it was a protest uh, about how he thought cops were treating um, people of minority in America. Um, he originally started it by just sitting on the bench, um, which before this, lots of people did. I mean, there are lots of things happening on the field you're not aware of during the national anthem, things of that nature. Um, a military, a member of the military, um, approached him and said, this is horrifically disrespectful to me. Would you be willing to kneel during the national anthem to show it your respect, like, you're not doing something else. You're not being cavalier about it. Kneeling is a position of honor and reverence. And I think in this particular case, um, he was referencing uh, uh, something that happens during certain military funerals, um, where a certain person or group of people at a certain part of the, the funeral or the service kneel in honor of the ultimate sacrifice paid to that nation, someone who gave his life for that. And he said, sure, I don't want to do that. I'm not trying to... I appreciate the soldiers. I appreciate particularly the ones who died for my freedom to protest. So if, that, if that's a more respectful way to do this, I'm, I'm more than capable of that. Now, note, your intentions for an action don't necessarily define the meaning of that action, right? It took on a life of its own. And whether you like that or not, right, that is what it ended up meaning for many people who were offended by it. But it's not, it's not the spirit of disrespecting the flag or the anthem that people were upset about, Right? Um, the actual flag code says don't put a flag on clothing or um, things like that. Don't use it in all kinds of ways. It's used in every stadium and every NFL game all the time, right? I mean, it's not the letter of the law, right? It's a particular practice that was disrupted that made people upset. And notice how much it made them upset. I'm not trying to dog on these people. I understand it. It's just fascinating to me. You have people who have been season ticket holders their whole life who have invested thousands upon thousands of dollars in their memorabilia and experiences who quit the NFL. And they really did. They quit it. They burned the jerseys. They mailed back their season tickets. They stopped watching a large portion of them. And these aren't just your wishy-washy bandwagon fans. These are your committed, crazy sports people it seems to indicate the actual irreducible part of a sporting event are the liturgies surrounding the nation, not the sport itself. You can touch the sport itself all you want. People still show up and like it. Man, those same people will go watch a losing team for 10 years and still invest the same time and money. And all. The, the product itself, right, seemingly has very little to do with their commitment to it. But when you disrupted that practice, that liturgy, you found, I think, the nerve of what was the irreducible expression that was happening there. And it offended them so much, they said, I'm out. 
I, I'm ejecting myself from this. That I think, for good or bad, again, I'm not trying to take a side here. I'm just trying to kind of observe this. That I think shows you how important, how important that process is to what these events actually are. It's a cultural liturgy. Again, this is something that the Roman philosophers were talking about back in the time of the Roman Empire. It was something that's been observed all over the world at all kinds of times and places. And it's effective. I mean, who here has not stood in an, a stadium with 100,000 people singing the anthem, your hand over your heart, with a plane coming over you, and not felt a surge of pride and emotion? I've been accused of not being the most nationalistic person in the world. But it's hard for me to be in a situation like that and not be overcome with that. Like, yeah, we are Americans. This is America. This is kind of awesome. It's effective. It's an embodied practice that, that shapes what we desire and what we prioritize and the kind of people that we end up becoming. I asked some people online to, to contribute some liturgies, and, and they came up with some interesting ones. The Netflix binge. What is the, how does the Netflix binge shape us? What is it, what's the vision of the good life that it offers us? What's the, what's the problem with our life it, it, it gives us? What's the solution? What's the vision of it? Maybe some sort of, some sort of like escapism. Obviously, there's a big entertainment um, reality value there. Um, smartphones, again, social media seems to be shapers of not necessarily consumerism or nationalism, but maybe like narcissism, egoism. Everything is about our convenience at the touch of our fingertips. Everything's about us communicating a, a good picture of ourselves to the people that we want, the times and places that we want. These formations, they happen importantly, I know I'm repeating it and beating that drum, liturgically, not didactically. Someone doesn't get up at a sporting event and tell you why you should be proud of your country. And if they did, that would not be the part that really shaped who you were. It's the rhythm, it's the routine. It's the powerful, enacted practices. They grab hold of our desires and our wants through our bodies with images, practices, experiences that inscribe certain desires inside of us. I invite you today to participate in what has been called a liturgical audit of your life to take these lens and to maybe find a contemplative space or time today or this week and look around your life, what you experience, the rhythms and routines of your life, and, and, and look at it through this lens. The questions you would ask is, being attentive, you want to ask yourself, what are the things I give myself to? I, I spend my time in and, and doing. And what are the things that we thought were simply things we did, but turns out upon further realization, they're things that do something to us. What are our iPhones that we thought we were creating that ended up shaping and molding and creating us. Possibilities are endless and fascinating. What story of the good life is implicitly encouraged in these liturgical practices? How are they shaping you? What are they that is forming you? What's working on your loves on an unconscious but profound level? And realizing these things doesn't necessarily mean you have to withdraw from it or retreat from it, even if you can identify certain ends that it is encouraging that perhaps are at odds with um, the story, the narrative of the gospel. Um, oftentimes, once you see something for what it is, particularly liturgically, it kind of loses its fangs. Particularly if you are oriented against that on a rational level. More positively, what, what you can do, the, the power of worship, 
is you can enter into these counterformative practices. If you recognize that, yes, the, the way my life has been set up and the practice I participate in, they pull me further and further into becoming a consumer, then I can participate in practices, Christian spiritual disciplines, worship, that form me into someone who realizes that consumption is not what satisfies me. It's not what fulfills me. Stuff is not where I'll find peace and, and joy. You can commit to practices that will kind of recalibrate your hearts there. This is what's at stake in worship. And by worship, I don't just mean singing. I mean the whole practice, the communal practices of the Christian community. Praying, reading scripture, encouraging one another. What's at stake here is our, our desires, our very hearts, our very identities. In the weeks to come, I'll, I'll transition out of today's look at cultural liturgies into um, religious liturgy, liturgies. So we'll, we'll talk about what we do on Sunday and why we do that. Why we think doing this every week will shape us into this type of person, will inscribe a certain gospel narrative into our hearts and into our minds and into our, our very bodies. We'll look at the liturgies of our homes, with our family, with our children, with our spouses. Look at our, our personal liturgies every day in daily life, the, the different rhythms and routines that we participate in that we might choose intentionally that might shape us and train us for godliness. Worship is where God invites us to have our hearts retuned, like we read in Scripture um, earlier today, to have it retuned to sing the, the songs of Zion, even though we might be on the shores of Babylon. Worship is where our compass is realigned and God and his kingdom become our true north again. You've probably heard the, the story of the man who was told that God would save him from this disastrous storm. And so he went to the roof and waited for God to save him. And a boat came and said, hop on, I'll take you away. And he said, no, God's going to save me. And another boat came and he had the same response. Third boat come. He's like, get away from me. I'm trusting God. And then course, he passes, and he goes to heaven. He has questions for God. He says, look, you were going to save me. And then God's like, look, I sent three boats for you. I don't know what, what else really you were expecting me to do. The church is the boat that Jesus has sent us. A community that worships together regularly, that trains itself in godliness. This is the boat Jesus has sent us. This is what we do that in persisting in it, we'll save ourselves and our hearers. This is what we do that will have value more than training our bodies, value for right now, this present life, and also for the life to come. When we say worship, I'm not just talking about songs, although anyone who is really connected with worship music at a, at a time in their life understands how worship music changes your desires. How you might, come, you might be in a situation where you are upset about a relationship or a situation at work, and you are really wanting to find your identity and security in a, a position or a role that you have or a certain relationship, and then a good worship song or, or a good worship experience kind of changes you, kind of leaves you feeling differently. Like, I, I don't care about that as much anymore. My wants, my desires, my love's been reformed. Compass is pointing a different direction now. It's been reformed to the gospel the narrative of, of salvation through, through Jesus. And this is what worship promises us. It's not just expressive. This is one of our failings. We'll talk about this next week. Worship is not just what we come to say and do, not something we come to let out about what we believe and feel. We go to worship, not simply to express our faith, but because we're called to worship by God. Liturgy is a call and response. 
We're called to worship. The primary agent in worship is not ourselves. It's God. The ascended Christ is the one who calls people to worship. The Spirit is the one who, through our hearts inside of us, lifts up praise to God that we are granted grace to join in on. The practices of church worship, they're not something we do. They're something that does something to us over time. This is why they're powerful and important. This is why two years after I became a pastor, I still had no concept of how important church was, a community that practices these disciplines regularly. But now, after just doing it for so long, week in and week out, I can't honestly comprehend what Christianity is like without this liturgical commitment. It's a concept dissonance in my mind. I, I, I don't have words really to explain it eloquently. When someone says they're a Christian and then I find out or they say they don't go to church, they don't do church, they don't participate in these worship practices, it makes no sense to me. I mean, it's just like cats and dogs, apples and oranges. I just have no place to categorize this. How are you a Christian? What does that mean? How do you stay a Christian? How do you become a Christian? How do you progress in your Christian life? How can you have an identity of something that you don't practice? Especially when there are all these other things that you practice that form you often in counter-identities. But this is the promise of worship. This is why it's important to go to worship even when you don't feel like it. Because maybe worship isn't about you feeling something. It'd be great if you feel it. That's a nice feeling. Maybe it's more important just to go to worship. Why? Because it's not what you're going to do there. It's what God's going to do to you there. He's the active agent here. Mark Twain, I'll wrap it up with this, once said that he who carries a cat by the tail knows something that would otherwise be unable to know. This kind of experiential knowledge, right? I can try to describe to you what it's like to hold a cat by its tail. But until you've done that, right, you probably don't really have this embodied experience of it. The knowledge is kind of inherent in the act. It's hard to describe otherwise. It's an irreducible part of the experience. This is what constitutes these physical acts of worship. They help us absorb the gospel, the narrative of of Jesus and salvation. You might say, instead of the cat and its tail, you, you might say, the church throughout history that has called people to its knees during worship. Perhaps knees on the ground know something about confession and reverence that otherwise is unable to be known. Perhaps it's an irreducible part of that. Or perhaps feet that have stood in response to an invitation to worship know something about what it means to stand in confidence and praise of a God who loves and forgives and calls them. Perhaps arms reached out in song know something and the fiber and the physical experience. They know something about what it means to be overcome with joy from God's salvation that, that otherwise is not able to be known. So this, this week I invite you to, to, to participate in this liturgical audit, to, to look around you and look around your life and, and ask these questions. What are the things that are shaping me and forming me? Are they shaping me and forming me in ways that perhaps are not the same as the gospel? How can I commit to practicing, to progressing, to training myself for godliness? How can we become people whose appetites are changed so that we are hungry and thirsty 
for the body and blood of Jesus. For that's where we find our satisfaction, our fulfillment, our salvation. And with that in mind, we'll, we'll close this part of our service and, and invite you forward to eat and to drink, to come and to physically practice what it means to worship, to find your sustenance in the body and blood of Jesus and his sacrifice for you. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you, and we thank you for all of your many blessings in our life. We pray that, that you would be with us, um, that you would open up our eyes to the many ways around us that we're being shaped, that you'd allow us to, to identify them and examine them, that you'd allow us to, to commit to um, these routines of, of worship, these practices of, of godly training, that would pull our hearts closer to pull our desires more in tune with that of, of yours, those desires that perhaps hold life out for us. We pray, Father, that as we come and we worship, that you would act in us, act on us, that you would shape us and renew us, that we would become what we love because we are increasingly loving you. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we pray. Amen.